welcome to The Naked Truth, real talk about West Coast Swing. My name is Eric, and this episode is the second part of my conversation with the incredible Kelly Casanova. If you didn't listen to part one, I encourage you to do so. For one thing, you can hear more about Kelly and her background, because I give her a proper introduction. And for another, it was an interesting conversation about some history, local community and clubs, why she stopped competing, and her own revelations about how she views this dance. This episode picks up right where we left off. We were discussing her event, Swing Break, and how there was backlash because she degendered the competitions. Keep in mind, this was 20 years ago before many events allowed people to dance in non-traditional roles. We talked a bit about how some people see this dance as sexual, whereas Kelly sees it more as two people connecting in a wide range of possible dynamics. This sets us up for what's to come, a discussion of degendering competitions. Kelly shares her own views on the matter, and I share my own experience competing as a novice follower. We talk about why we believe degendering should be allowed, and we look at the progress that has been made to degender competitions and what still remains. I know not everyone wants to see contests degendered, and that's okay, but I hope our discussion alleviates some of your concerns and provides some perspective and food for thought regardless of where you stand on the issue. Then I asked Kelly about her thoughts on judging, and we got into a whole discussion of her experience judging swing content at the Open this year. We talked about her experience as a swing content judge, how she came up with the swing content app, how she felt about the Open this year, and why she's hopeful for things moving forward. As always, she was fair, insightful, and optimistic. I hope you learned something from the conversation, but I also hope it inspires many of you to get involved and that it gives you a little more optimism about the future of our dance. So with that, here is the second part of my conversation with Kelly Casanova. One of my pet peeves is people who just start doing the other role without taking a class. I mean, right. you wouldn't want to dance with somebody who didn't take a class, you know, who's trying to do really complicated moves on you. So why would you want to be that person? Um, like they're just because you're good at one role doesn't mean you're good at the other inherently. Well, yes. You may you. understand this your own body, but like, this has been my argument with the world swing dance council for years about their rules. Right. I mean, I was, thrilled when we had that brief window of opportunity. I actually pulled myself out of retirement so I could um, lead. Uh, mm -hmm. And I went into novice as a lead and I did two competitions <laughs> because I was limited because at most of the events I was either judging or chief judging. So obviously I, I couldn't compete in those divisions, but I competed in novice twice. Uh, the first time I um, I placed 11th out of 10 in finals. I made finals, but I placed 11th, and they only gave points to the top 10 because of the mm -hmm. tier we were in. So I didn't get a point. And then the second time, I placed 6th in finals. Um, so I was thrilled because I actually, you know, I got my one novice lead point. And it, actually, that competition was kind of fun. I, I really enjoyed that experience because when I was competing um, – I went straight into what back in the day they didn't have a champions. They, they called them different funny names like um, the nifty nine, the spiffy seven or something like that. I forget what we were called, mm -hmm. but it was basically an invitational, right? Um, or it was just everybody's all in one big old Jack and Jill kind of thing. 
Um, and <laughs> so I never got the opportunity to dance in a novice competition or intermediate and earn my way up. I was just kind of, I was either in the big Jack and Joe with everybody and then boom, I won an open. So all of a sudden now, boom, I'm, I'm in the invitational category kind of thing. And that, that was it. Um, so to me, it was really fun to be a novice. And what was really fun about it was um, Samantha was in the same contest I was in. And I remember um, being all excited and we were out on the floor and we were in the same heat. And then the music came on and it was a slow lyrical song, which is, you know, not, not my jam. <laughs> and I started <laughs> to panic because it's like, there's no percussion. There's no friggin' beat. I'm going right. to dance off time. So I positioned myself so I could watch Samantha. And I just watched her start. And then I I, I copied her. I followed the beat <laughs> she was on. And then I was fine, you know, once I got going. But it was like I had this total moment of panic, um, realizing that, oh, my God, the music is so different than what I'm used to dancing to, um, that I'm not sure I can pull this off. But all my all my three ladies made they were all ladies that I danced with. They all made finals. So I did my job. So I was happy about that. Um, but then, you know, the window closed because then they changed the rules and said, well, now you have to dance one, one level, only one level down because right. their rule, their, their argument is that, well, you know, it's not fair. You're sandbagging. And I'm like, I'm not sandbagging. I have one friggin' novice point, you know? And so I thought, okay, I'll follow right. the rules. And I entered intermediate. Um, when they switched the rules over. And I remember being just, I looked around and all the intermediate leads were so much better than me. And they were, and they had earned their right to be there. And I felt like I had snuck in, you know, I felt like I was cheating, um, that I had no business being there. And I felt really bad for my partners because I thought, you know, they should get a better draw than me. I don't deserve to be here. And um, fortunately, they all made it to the next round. But after that experience, I realized, you know, I, I, I don't want to dance as an intermediate lead. I don't feel qualified. It's just not there. So I'm not, I'm not going to do it anymore. So that was my second retirement from competition. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, you know, I mean, it was just, it was just silly. And I, I would have these arguments with, um, you know, different people in the, in the different organizations about it. And, and I realized these people don't, that I'm arguing with, they, they don't socially lead and follow. Uh, mm -hmm. They might teach both parts, but they don't actually socially dance both parts. So they don't realize how different the skill sets are. Yeah. Um, and so they didn't value my argument that, which I still believe that everybody should start a novice and work their way up. I don't care how many U.S. Open titles you have. If you've only won all those things in one role, that doesn't qualify you in another role. And that's right. what I did with Samantha. I mean, a lot of her peers, when she was growing up, um, when she got out of juniors, they were grandfathered into advanced. And I said, no, 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 that's you're not getting grandfathered anywhere. You're, you're starting a novice. And mm -hmm. I remember at the time she was not happy about it uh, because <laughs> all of her friends, you know, were dancing advanced, and here she is a novice. But, you know, it didn't take her very long to to uh, rock it out of novice and intermediate and join her friends in advance. But now I think she's, if you talk to her, she's very glad she did it that way. So if anybody ever says, well, the only reason why you're in Champions is because your mom is a blah, 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 she can say, well, look at the points. You know, I've earned right. every single point 
in every single role that I have, nobody gave me anything. I, you know, I earned my way here. And I think that's how everybody should do it, um, including me, which is why I felt like I was cheating. Because they, they said my U.S. Open when it was so old that U.S. Open back then was considered an advanced division. So I could go down to intermediate. That's how they put me in the intermediate category. Even though I had last competed in champions, they, they knew better than to say I had to meet in all-stars, which would have been an absolute farce. You know? so. <laughs> I remember you competing. I think that was that swing tacular. Yeah. Cause I remember talking to you that weekend and you were competing in intermediate. And I think you said something, I'm maybe misremembering this, but I thought you said something to the effect of like, you were going out there to prove that you shouldn't be intermediate as a leader. Like you yeah. weren't ready. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was doing it because that's, I was following the rules, you know? Right. So you, you follow the rules and I was following the rules and I thought, okay, I'm going to try it once, see how it goes. But I have a feeling that it's going to just prove that I don't belong here. And it's true. I don't, I didn't, I still feel like I'm a novice lead. Um, so, you know, that's where I belong. Plus, you know, when I say I'm a novice lead, what I mean by that too, is that the bar has been raised over the years so high that what mm -hmm. we consider novice now used to be advanced, you know, oh, 40 yeah. years ago. So, right. I mean, it, it, you know, I'm a decent lead, but I'm not as far as a competitive leader is concerned, especially not with the, the more lyrical music, I can't keep up with the, the leaders these days, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a whole different ball game. So I'm, I'll be very glad um, when the rules change so that everybody has to start at novice level and earn their way up. And there's none of this grandfathering in based on points of a, of a different role. I, I just don't think that that's appropriate. No, and it's not, I mean, I'll, I'll take some of the heat for some of that rule because um, that rule was passed shortly after uh, uh, Ben McHenry and I won as novice um, followers at Boogie by the Bay. Um, and I got a lot of backlash from that, um, some publicly on social media and some through private messages, primarily from uh, novice followers who said that I stole their points. And um, one, I didn't know their points, those points were theirs. I had no idea that they were previously allocated to them. So I apologize to anybody who <laughs> had previously rigged the competition. But um, but also, uh, <laughs> uh, nobody has points until you earn them. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, uh, and my reaction was, I mean, kind of the same reaction you had to that gentleman who said that he only dances with people he's attracted to, where I just said, well, if you want those points, then beat me. Um, so like be better than me as a, a guy who follows, you know, and it's not my primary role, like go and beat me. But the other thing was that, you know, and you were part of the, the blog series that I did on this a few years ago on degendering competitions. Um, but uh, you and uh, Phoenix, contributed and Andy Bowman and a couple of others. Um, but if you look at the numbers from, from that event, right. Cause Boogie is a big event and there were lots of people who took advantage of the opportunity to do both roles. And so I think it was something like 30 advanced or all-star dancers danced in novice in their non-traditional role. Um, 
And of those 30, I think only, I want to say about like 12 or 12 or so made semis. And then of those 12, only four of us made finals. So Ben right. McHenry and I, and then Mike Carringer was the other um, male and Michelle Crozier was a leader. Um, right. So four out of 30 made finals. So you right. can't tell me that. And then of us, only two of us placed. So, I mean, you can't tell me that just because you're good in one role means you're, you know, that you're an advanced or all-star in one role means you're going to kill it in the other. It's just not true. Exactly. And we have like a big experiment that proves it. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, one, when people say I'm sandbagging, I was doing exactly what you said. Like, I'm, I, I don't know. First of all, I really honestly had no idea if I was any good as a follower. I knew I enjoyed it. I knew that I did work at it, mostly from a teaching standpoint. Like I wanted to right. better understand actual following in the wild so that I could be a better teacher to my followers. Um, and so I did work at certain things, but I didn't actually know if I was good. So I jumped in novice. I had no points. Um, right. Where you should have been. Absolutely. Right. And also what you have to remember, Eric, is that this is the same argument. Okay. You know, the, the backlash that you got, um, there were other people in the community that got it for different reasons back in my day. For example, mm -hmm. um, I remember when Deborah Seke came on the scene and she started dancing and a lot of people were upset because uh, she and, and somebody like um, Blake, um, uh, like Dowling, they, uh, I don't know, uh, um, you, you know, I can't, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so <laughs> there were, there were a lot of people that came in from a, with a ballet background or a jazz background. And so mm -hmm. if they started in a low division, like say novice, they would just immediately stick out. Like they don't belong here and they'd skyrocket out. And people right. in that division would go, well, it's not fair that they're here. They're sandbagging, you know, and like, no, they're brand new swing dancers. I'm sorry that they're more talented and trained than you are. And they spent 10 years in ballet school when they were a kid, right. but it shows and they now deserve to get out. It's the same thing with Samantha when I put her in novice. She right. stood out in novice because she wasn't really a novice competitor. She was better, but she got out of there. So, you know, three conventions, she gets three first place, boom, she's out and she's gone on. So the people that really are good um, and are in the novice because they've never danced in that role before they'll they'll go away pretty quickly they're not going to be right. sticking around taking as that lady said your points you know from anybody because they're they're going to go they're going to uh, move on earn their points and move on to the next category fairly quickly and so they'll there won't be an issue but when you have all these people that are being grandfathered and going one level down then it's a sticky wicket that sticks around for a long time because right. there are a lot of people that don't like me what if what if i stayed in intermediate i'd be this bum draw forever because i mean if i go and do it the proper way let's say i go back and they let me dance in novice i'm pretty sure i'll be a novice until i'm 80 or so and then maybe, maybe I'll get into intermediate and never make the next, um, you know, the semifinal round, right? So right. I, I'll be a crummy intermediate draw. So if I'm going to be a crummy intermediate draw, I don't want to be a crummy intermediate draw without having earned my right to be in the intermediate category, you know? I'm just a bad draw mm -hmm. then who doesn't belong in that division. 
So I'd much right. rather have people like yourself start a novice and then win and then go away and go into intermediate right. or go into advanced or wherever you belong um, quickly than to have somebody like me be forced to dance in an intermediate category and just, you know, basically not be a good draw for all the intermediate followers who have really earned a right to be there and have worked really hard to be there and really want to make the next round, you know, and then they get me. That's not fair. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've heard that that argument with the, the jazz dancers, the ballet dancers, and this and yeah, that. You know, ballroom and dancers, like, yeah. Latin. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're talented. Oh, well. They, they, they will go away real soon. You won't have to deal with right. the novice very long. Yeah. And that's where I wish the World Swing Dance Council had waited a bit because I feel like Boogie was the first big event in that period to to open up the competitions. Um, it wasn't the only one, but it was the biggest. And I feel like there was just a lot of backlash to that. Um, not just Boogie, but the increasing number of, of degendered competitions at that time. Right, and right. in that year, and I feel like the World Swing Dance Council, like, they're good in responding to competitors, but I think yeah. they jumped the gun a bit because if they had waited even another year, a lot of those people who were quote unquote sandbagging would have been out. And I think the complaints would have died down as people moved up to where they should have been. I mean, we had the same thing with um, when, when the dance expanded to Europe and you had all these dancers who were of trained course. in other dances coming to America. I mean, I can't tell you right. how many times I was one of them when I was a sore loser. It'd be like, well, they're they're favoring Europeans. It's like, no, they're actually better. <laughs> they're going to be out soon. <laughs> um, you know, right. I remember like watching Max Sons come and I'm like, no way, like get that guy out of here. Um, so, you know, they, they move through and it's a, just a natural progression that I agree with you. People should go through, like earn your stripes, follow the system. The system was designed to move people up um, and had, I think had the World Swing Dance Council waited another year or so that that fervor, that backlash would have died down a bit. Um, I mean, we'll never know now, but I'm also curious what you think of where things are now, because I feel like at that time there was a growing, you know, push for degendered competitions. Um, I feel like there was more activism and advocacy, or at least a stronger advocacy for degendered. And I feel like I, I'm with you. I want to see this extra step removed. Um, and I guess for a lot of people who are coming in to the scene in the last few years, that's kind of been the way it goes. So they just compete in both roles as they go through the system. But there are yeah, like myself. Affect, it doesn't affect them because they're new. So they get to do whatever they want, which is right. great. And um, they'll dance both roles moving up. But like, I I would have right. to be an advanced follower. And I, I, I look at the advanced followers and I, I'm, I can't even imagine being anywhere near their skill level. Right. I think it is moving that way, Eric. I, I mean, back, I remember when I was, I don't even remember what year it is now, um, but I remember coming back from uh, Seattle, Easter Swing, in the, air, uh, in the car uh, on the drive to the airport and talking about how, um, you know, I was just, I was fed up with trying to work within the system and I was going to go outside the system. And so I got home and I called Sam. I said, I'm, I'm going to start a petition and I'm going to take it around to all the events and have people sign it. And Samantha just starts laughing at me. She goes, mom, we don't do paper petitions. You know, it's everything's online now. And, I, and I'm like, well, I don't know how to do it online. She goes, well, <laughs> here, let me hook you up with Phoenix and he'll do it. And you write it out and he'll put it online and, you know, we'll, we'll get signatures and blah, blah, blah. And of course, 
you know, overnight we got like 2,000 people signing right. that petition, um, which kind of just amazed me because, you know, here I've been talking one-on-one -on -one with people and getting nowhere. And then I was going to walk around with my little pathetic piece of paper. And now it just went <laughs> viral overnight and 2000 people signed it. And it was like, amazing. This is a great use of social media. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course it, it was, again, the social fabric was at a certain place in the world where it was the right time. So right. if, if nothing else, I have learned, I used to be so impatient about this. I mean, you know, 35, 40 years ago, I just did not see what the problem was. And I couldn't, I felt like I was in an alternate universe. And there was a lot of frustration going on. And, and then over the years, I realized, well, okay, you just have to be patient and you will see change. And once you see some change, other change is inevitable. And so I'm at a point right now where I do believe that the members of the World Finance Council do want to do what's best for the community. They do want to do what's best for all the competitors. And they have a lot of um, information that's competing and, contra and, you know, contrary that's coming into them about what to do. And they mm -hmm. are working through all of this stuff. And definitely I put my two cents in as to, you know, how I think it should go. And I mm -hmm. think they're working on it and, and I think their intentions are good, but what a lot of people don't realize um, with all these organizations, uh, you know, they're, they're not for profit, they're volunteer and people have lives and other jobs and other responsibilities. And so all this stuff has to be handled, um, you know, on their free time and, right. it, you know, it, it moves slowly, but it is moving. And I think it's moving in the right direction. And I think uh, at least I feel like I have been heard um, as to what I would like to see happen and that my arguments have been um, listened to whether or not mm -hmm. people agree with me, that's a whole nother ballgame. But at, at least I feel like, you know, I've had my input. And I think that once you start to have a shift or a change in a certain direction, it's, you have a certain amount of momentum, it's really hard to go back. Um, right. So I do believe that in the next couple of years, they will change the rules so that, um, you know, you and I can go back into novice <laughs> and, or, or wherever we belong and right. do what we want to do. I mean, at that point, maybe, you know, uh, I, I, I won't want to do novice lead anymore, but um, for a while it was, it was something that kept me energized and engaged in the community because, you know, I've yeah. been in this for 40 years, no break. So you have to look at different things to keep you, uh, invigorated, you know, and learning how to lead tandem was one um, mm -hmm. that was really, you know, after I learned to lead and learning to lead tandem. And, and so that that is really interesting to me and really fun for me. And it keeps me excited about going to dances and stuff. Um, so right. I don't burn out, you know, I keep yeah. evolving. I mean, I think that's, I think that's key is that if you have an open mind, then you don't stagnate. You continue to move forward. You continue to learn. You continue to grow. Right. Well, and that's for me, it's the same thing. I, I kind of use following socially. I mean, I do it to dance with friends the same way you get to dance with your daughter. Like I have leader friends that I want to dance with. So it's one way to do that, but it, it is invigorating. And, and so while we said that, yes, this new generation of dancers, they probably don't know the difference or they work the system as it exists where they will, they'll compete alternating lead and follow and just earn their points. I do think there are a lot of people who 
get to an advanced or even all-star level who maybe follow or, or do the opposite role for fun, um, but maybe want to mix it up, like to keep themselves, like you said, invigorated, you know, re or reinvigorated in the dance or re-energized and say, you know what, I think I'd like to compete as a follower, but they won't be able to do it at, at a novice level right now. And, and so I, I'm glad to hear you say that the World Swing Dance Council is mulling this over and thinking about it because, I mean, part of it is I don't believe you know, what's the saying, uh, what's popular is not always right. And what's right is not always popular. Like, of course, just of because course. people don't want it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. Um, and also, I think just on principle, the idea that they, they have this uh, level restriction is just putting forth the message that if you're good at one role, you're automatically good at the other. And you and I both know that's, that's not true. So like on principle, um, you know, plus, I think, I would think that a lot of event directors would want to do away with the rule because it offers more people the opportunity to compete more times, <laughs> like, you know, getting well, back well, to your, your business case, like it's financially a better option to let more people compete. Exactly. And it's like, to me, it, it seems ridiculous that people have to choose for a weekend, only one role. I mean, let's, let's, let's look at, um, let's take a really good example. Um, I'm going to use Cameo Cross because she's an incredibly talented, gifted, beautiful dancer, right? Mm -hmm. So when when she was at the Open a few years ago and she danced, what did she do? She did cabaret, she did showcase, she did classic, she did strictly, and she did the Jack and Chills. I mean, she mm -hmm. did it all. And not only did she do it all, she like placed first in almost everything she danced in, right? Right. Um, I, I don't, like, unfortunately, I don't have the mind that, like I said, some of your other guests have that can remember what she was wearing in the exact placements. But I know that she placed first in at least three different things, you know, mm -hmm. a hat trick, if nothing else. And um, and everybody celebrated that. So look how talented, look how disciplined to dance all these different routines with different partners and, you know, what dedication. And it's like, yes. I agree. That's wonderful. So then why do these same people that are saying how wonderful this um, accomplishment was not want somebody to lead in one division and follow in another division? How is that not fair? I mean, to me, it, it, that's a really cool thing. It's more, more people understanding both sides of the coin, being more empathetic with partners because they can do both parts giving more money to the event and more money to the World Swing Dance Council um, because of the entry fees and participating more fully in the weekend because they're in more contests. Um, you know, we have things like Jack and Jill or Rammer, which is, you know, you can do like 20 million contests in a weekend, right? And mm -hmm. that's cool. So, you know, why can't we allow people to do that? And yeah. I never understood the logic behind it. It just didn't make any sense to me that, well, that's not fair to the other dancers. It's like, eh, how can that not be fair? You know, I mean, it, it just, it just seems hypocritical to, 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 um, you know, claim how wonderful it is when somebody can do three different routines, but then not allow them to dance as a follow in one division and a lead in another. It, it just, I, I don't know. Again, I'm on another planet than other people are. <laughs> well, I'm on that planet with you because I've heard the argument, well, I work really hard at my following. So when you come in and you take my points, that's not fair. And I'm like, um, well, I, you worked really hard at your following too. What the well, heck? Well, yeah, one, I worked I at it. I worked at my dancing, but also, you know, it's not like, oh, well, you worked harder. Therefore, you're going to win. Like, let's get our, our perspective straight. <laughs> you know, like, right. that's not right. how this thing works. 
that's how you're calibrating. If you think you, you're just going to practice more and suddenly you're going to win. I mean, yes, ideally it'd be a good correlation, but so many things out of your hands. Um, that's right. That's, that's absolutely right. I mean, and by that, by that yardstick, I should be winning everything because <laughs> I've been <laughs> dancing five days a week for 40 years. So, right. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah. And you know, what a lot of people don't realize, um, you know, I, 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 I did hear um, Tom mention that, you know, some of us older dancers in the Bay Area um, have a certain style that we like to dance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not that we don't care about what the other people are doing. It's right. maybe it's not our preference, right? But it mm-hmm. doesn't mean we don't know how to do that. I mean, I've made it a point to never stop taking lessons. Um, I, I've, whenever possible, I drop in on workshops at events that I'm at, even if it's just like I, I have an hour and there are three different workshops. So I'll spend 20 minutes in one, 20 minutes in another, and 20 minutes in another to see what the champions are teaching these days and what kind of philosophies are being taught and what kind of connection concepts are being discussed and, and things like that. And, you know, I've done like last, last year, I did two, to we uh, weekend whole week dance camp things you know mm-hmm. um, and for me a lot of it now is not so much for my own individual dancing but for me to understand um, teaching techniques and teaching concepts and philosophies and to be a better judge and to be an educated judge so that I know what I'm looking at and I can determine whether or not it's it's good because right. if it's out of my wheelhouse, I need to be educated in it. Um, but I've never stopped, yeah. you know, learning. I mean, I mean, for me, Samantha has been a big gift for me in that respect because um, I'm I'm very familiar with, you know, how she moves and everything, and so I can watch her dance to a slow lyrical song, and there's a lot in there that then I can copy. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I I can move like that and other things of course I can't do, but um, I look at her for inspiration in that way, um, so that I can I can broaden my own breadth of experience and abilities. But when I go social dancing, I don't necessarily choose to dance that way because I'm not inspired necessarily by that kind of music. So. Right that's when I'll take a break and sit down, you know? Yeah. So. Well, we've talked a lot on this show about judge education, Um, you know, judges staying informed and knowing what they're Mm -hmm. seeing so that they can be more effective as adjudicators. Um, Right. uh, You know, you've stepped into this role of judging partly because Annie kind of pulled you or pushed you, however you want to look at it. Um, (laughs) But you do now judge at a lot of events and you are a chief judge at a lot of events. I'm curious what your perspective is on judging, if if you have a particular approach um, and what you would like to see in the judging moving forward. Well, um, I do believe in ongoing education, almost every profession, you know, in order to keep your certification, you have to take so many hours of ongoing education to stay fresh, right? I mm-hmm. mean, I don't, whether you're a therapist or an attorney or a doctor or whatever. Um, so, I think ongoing education is a great thing, and I try to take advantage of it myself whenever I can. I know that um, 
when the U.S. Open started their uh, certification judges program, um, I heard from some people they were a little, uh, I don't know what the word would be, uh, just a, a little bit surprised maybe that they would be asked to take a test or study some material because they'd been judging for X amount of years. And of course they knew what they were doing. And so it was maybe a little insulting to be asked to, to do this you know, program. And I was like, well, I don't see it that way. I think it's great. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, I want to learn as much as I can and I don't think I know everything. So maybe I can learn something here. And um, the way I look at ongoing education is sometimes you know, you learn what you don't like or what you're not going to use. And that's just as valuable as finding something that you really do like. Um, And at least knowing that there's another perspective out there, that there are some people that adhere to a certain philosophy that maybe I don't agree with, but now I know it's out there. So when those students come to me, I, I understand their language. I understand their perspective. I understand where they're coming from. So I can present the material that I want in a way that maybe they can hear it. Whereas if I didn't know about it, I might not be able to communicate so effectively. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I felt like I got something out of the judging program and I, I understand they're going to do a chief judges certification program. And I'd certainly like to be involved in that and take that test and see how I do there. In fact, <laughs> I just sent Tom Paderna uh, an email before our conversation today, um, before I saw the link to that uh, bias test. Uh, that mm-hmm. you guys were discussing because um, I never took that test and I'd like to take it. I'd like to see, I mean, I think I know what my biases are, <laughs> but I certainly would like to take a test to see what I've missed. Yeah. You know, if I missed something. Um, so I think, I think when somebody is secure and they, they actually care about doing a really good job, they're not as threatened by the possibility of having to, take a test, participate in a program or something like that, because um, they know enough to know they don't know everything. Right. Right. Do you see a lot of judges? I mean, as a chief judge, I know sometimes you get to pick your panel and sometimes you don't. So do you feel like there are a lot of judges who are lacking proper education or that could use more education to be more effective judges? Well, first, let's go back to what you just said about picking a panel. I, mm-hmm. I don't really get to pick a panel. I mean, I, I the judges are picked by the event promoter or the club, the organization. Right. And then you are told these are your primary judges, these are your secondary judges. And then from that, you get to, you know, make up your, your panels. So you kind of get to pick, but you, you don't get to pick completely because you have to pick from a certain pool, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you consider all the people that have conflicts, you know, that are married to people in the contest or have kids in the contest or whatever, um, you know, the, it, it narrows it down to where you're not really getting much of a choice <laughs> of who's on the panel. Um, I am very fortunate. Well, I'm not doing as much chief judging as I used to, but I'm very fortunate in the places that I do chief judge that um, I usually have uh really seasoned qualified judges though mm-hmm. you know the the rules you know as we as we become more sophisticated um and grow as a community things have changed for example this last year at boogie by the bay um 
I stepped down from being a chief judge of any contest Samantha was dancing in. And in the past, um, although we had a system in place to ensure that there was no bias, it wasn't very, I guess, well publicized. So a lot of people thought it was suspicious that I was out on the floor while Sam was dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, what they didn't realize, evidently, was that before the contest starts, I, I would always ask the score person to pick a number between, you know, like if we had uh, five judges, you know, one and five, and that would be the judge that would break the tie for, say, uh, follows if Sam, Samantha was following in a competition. So my scores wouldn't count. I'm only looking at the leads to break the tie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the same thing having to do with um, where the break would be. The break would be decided on certain criteria. And if it, if it got a kind of messy, it would then be between the score and I would assign somebody else to, to, to make that decision. So my input wasn't there. Um, but I guess, you know, people don't know the inner workings of that. And so the optics aren't good. And so they wanted to change that so that the optics were uh, reflective of the reality. And mm-hmm. so we had a different chief judge step in um, when Samantha was uh, competing. And, you know, having two chief judges, that's a whole nother can of worms that you open up that that has some unintended consequences, which are complicated to deal with. Um, but I certainly admire the club's um, motivation to make sure that everything is appears fair. I mean, one of the things that Annie Hirsch used to say was, it's not so much as matter whether it's fair, it's whether or not it appears fair. And I, mm-hmm. and I was like, huh? <laughs> it should it should just be fair. And she said, yeah, but it also has to appear fair. And this is one of those examples of it was fair, but it didn't appear fair. So we had to do something so that it was both fair and appeared fair, even if it creates a lot of extra work and problems behind the scene. And, communication, things have to be better and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's the better choice. Um, So we have a lot of that going on in the community right now where people are reevaluating certain things. Um, And yet still we have some conventions where, you know, I'm, I'm given a panel and I'm like, uh, you have somebody on the panel for this division where they have a family member in it and the event promoter says, well, we don't have any other judge. I'm like, well, you can't use them. You know, I mean, there are rules against this. And so now we have a decision to make. Do we pull in somebody from the audience who's maybe an all-star dancer and a teacher locally, but maybe not the greatest judge versus a really well-qualified judge that happens to have a family member in the contest? Mm -hmm. You know, what do you do? And um, of course, you know, the World Swing Dance Council is starting to become more um, active about saying this is the right thing to do in these circumstances. And if you want to stay, you know, in the system and have your points count, then you need to follow these rules. And so because right. things are constantly changing all the time, you you have to constantly be checking because uh, what was last year is not necessarily this year. And you know, it's it's really hard for event directors to keep up with all the changes and let alone the competitors. The competitors don't even read the rules. So they're not going to go on the World Swing Dance Council website and the NASD website and the Rising Star website and read through all the this year's changes. You know, 
So it's, it's tricky. It's all part of the growing pains of getting us to a place where the judging is as fair as it can be and as impartial and as uh, full of integrity and transparency as it can be. And it's good. It's all good. It's just getting there it sometimes is a little messy, you know? Yeah. As a chief judge, what do you do to provide accountability for your judging panel? Do you review all the scores? Have you ever had to talk to a judge about what you thought was a, a apparent bias in their judging? Um, in the past, when I first started, I would have conversation with judges. And occasionally now I will ask, um, I don't like call them and say, why did you have so-and-so in this placement? It's right. more of a casual conversation. Like, what did you see in this, in this routine? Or I look at their notes to see what they wrote down, if I have a question about it. But I do... I do look at scores. Um, however, just having an outline score doesn't cause a red flag necessarily in, in my book. Mm -hmm. It's can the person, I mean, sometimes my scores are the ones that are out of whack. Um, mm -hmm. All I care about is can the judge give me a reasonable, logical explanation for why they placed the person where they placed them, right? right. Um, and sometimes, Jack Kerry used to say, sometimes the, the judge that is the outlier is the one judge that saw something that nobody else saw. You know, they right. fell down and nobody else saw that. Or um, such and such a thing happened. Uh, they were yelling at each other, you know, or whatever, whatever it was, something, something that they specifically caught that no one else caught. Um, so just having kind of informal conversations with certain people to understand that. But I do look for biases, and um, if I find a bias of some kind, what I will do is I will talk to the person that hired me, the event director, the promoter, and I will say, this is what I noticed in this judge's scores, so maybe you want to um, talk to them or, you know, think about hiring somebody different next time. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. You know, and that's right. their prerogative. They can hire whoever they want. But then I, I pay attention. So like, let's just say it's a, um, an age bias or something like that, right, uh, that you notice, um, or a weight bias, like what Tom was talking about. If I notice something like that, then I'm not going to have that judge judge certain divisions in certain roles, right, right. because I'll put them someplace else. You know, I, I can always put somebody else in there. So if I know that um, somebody doesn't like to judge, uh, they want to judge young looking people and not older people, then having them judge masters, you know, they're just going to put the youngest looking masters in for a second and third. That's not good. Right. You know, that's not how it works. So I won't have them judge masters or, or that particular role. I'll have them do a different role. So um, there, there is some of that, but by and large, you have to, um, you have to trust the judges and back the judges. I mean, they're hired for a reason. They're hired for their opinion. They're hired for their expertise. And if they're, they're not good at what they do, they shouldn't be hired. So right. you, you give that information to the promoter, and then that promoter decides who they ultimately want to hire and who they value, whose opinion they value. Right. So you were part of the U.S. Open training for judges, and then you were assigned as one of the swing content judges, and you were hired for your expertise. I'm just curious if you can 
talk about your experience either preparing for and or serving in that role as a swing content judge since that was a new thing this year? Well, um, I, I haven't been told I can't talk about it, so I guess yeah. I can. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. I mean, <laughs> if, if this gets on the air and I get an email saying I'm fired forever, I mean, I, who knows? Um, but I don't think so. Uh, the experience of being invited was interesting because I was like, oh, okay. Um, if I'm going to be judging swing content, I need to know what the criteria is. It needs to be clear to the contestants as well as to the audience and the judges. Mm -hmm. So having the criteria set was a really good thing. What was a little disappointing was not anything the U.S. Open did, but it was um, the lack of response from other professionals. I mean, they put out on the website, you know, here are the things that we're saying is swing and here are the things we're saying isn't swing. Um, and then I heard through the grapevine, a lot of people weren't happy with it. And I would call people up individually and say, hey, I hear you have an issue with X, Y, and Z. Why don't you let the U.S. Open know your opinion and what you think is swing? Because this is, this is a work in progress. You know, mm -hmm. this is a first step to get us to where we need to go. Um, this wasn't meant to be, you know, the end all be all and final document. And people didn't write in or email in their suggestions. They just stayed right. quiet. So it was like, well, if you don't like the way something is, you, you have to tell us how you want it. You can't just say mm -hmm. you don't like it. That's not helpful, right? So that was a little surprising to me that more people didn't want to be involved or didn't feel that they had something to contribute. Because I think there's a lot of uh, judges, teachers, competitors, um, coaches out there that have a lot to say on it. And I think that their input would be welcome. I mean, um, well, from what I've so, heard, there are some professionals who felt that they were never reached out to for input on this whole new method they were trying this year. So I don't, I don't know if well, that's true. I mean, it sounds like you reached out to people, but I don't know how people were asked to be engaged if they were asked at all. Well, I know um, all the people that were in the in the training program were asked to give input, and there mm -hmm. were quite a few people that were in that initial training program. Um, yeah. And then once it was on the website, uh, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe that there was something on the website that said, you know, contact us if you have comments or concerns about this, let us know. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe people didn't feel like that was an invitation enough. And I Maybe. certainly didn't represent the U.S. Open when I called people. It was just, you know, I would hear things like so-and-so is unhappy with this definition and thinks it should be this. So I would call so-and-so. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know all the so-and-sos out there. So I only informally contacted people as an individual, not as a representative of the U.S. Open. I just said, I think it would be really good if you um, told them what your what your input is on this. So that um, you could you could make a difference, and it's right. not too late. I mean, anybody listening to this podcast can go, "Wow, okay, open season. Let's 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 do our definition of swing and send it in." And I think that um, it would definitely be evaluated. I know Yvonne um, is very open-minded and wants to have a lot of feedback and wants to have a lot of 
people invested in um, having having a good definition of a good defi- working definition of what swing is, so that it's super clear for the competitors and the judges and the audience. So um, I've always found her to be eager to get that kind of feedback. Um, so, I mean, it was the first year, so right. maybe, you know, that didn't get communicated as effectively as it could have. Um, I, I was in my own little bubble because I was racking my brain to figure out, okay, how can I do this in a way that is consistent and fair? Right. And the method that I've been using for the past 20 years or so is a very um, time-consuming, laborious method that's exhausting that I knew I couldn't keep up for the entire weekend of the U.S. Open. So um, I actually uh, called uh, my friend Dan Krieger um, and I said, Dan, um, here's what I want. I want a little I want a little box that has a lever on it that I can push the lever left or right and it'll record when something is swing and when it's not swing. So I don't have to do all the mathematical calculations myself and count beats or seconds or any of that kind of stuff. Like I have been doing, which is really hard. And he goes, well, I'm not a mechanical engineer, but I can give you an app. And um, I asked him for this uh, coming back and driving back from Sacramento last year. Um, And by the time I got home, he had the app for me. And then I said, hey, this is really cool. Can I um, can I get a timing chart on it as well? And he was like, sure, I can do that too. So he's a magician. He, he did it. And I <laughs> played around with it. And then I called up Yvonne. I said, Yvonne, I've got this tool that I asked um, Dan to create for me. And he designed it. And it's really wonderful. Let me Let me show it to you and see what you think. And then she loved it. And then she showed it to John, who was the other swim content judge at the time, and he loved it. And we all just said, okay, we're going to train on this thing because this is new. We want to make sure that we know what we're doing and that it it works. And so we spent um, all year, you know, training on the thing to make sure that uh, we we were happy with the way it worked out. And and I like it. I mean, I, I think, I mean, it's not perfect. I would prefer to have a mechanical box with a lever because... Uh, a button on a phone, um, your thumb can slip, you know, you could have operator error. I mean, you can have operator error on anything, but right. um, being able to keep your eye on the floor and be sure that the button is is in the position that you want it to be in, I mean, it does take some training to do that. Um, sure. But I think that whole process was uh, really, really good. I mean, we got pretty pretty adept at it. I mean, we looked at hundreds of videos uh, over the year doing this. I don't know how mm-hmm. many people know how much we trained, but we actually spent a lot of time on it. Um, so I, I was very happy with that as a first um, first year launch kind of thing. Yeah. How did you feel about people's reactions to the Open this year? I mean, um, well, people I always have reactions to the open scores. <laughs> well, I don't really know because because I wasn't, um, you know, I, I, I got on an airplane and came home. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm not really one to like hover around social media. And um, I spent the time preparing for, you know, my family to come for Christmas and stuff like that. So, you know, what what people's reaction is, they haven't really, you know, unless somebody's, 
bothered to talk to me one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how they felt about it. Um, I felt like it was a pretty, um, it was, it was a better, a, a better process than what we have had previously, which was just tell the judge to go with their gut, which right. I never liked. I never liked that. That's why I developed a system of counting beats um, mm-hmm. for swing and non-swing. But it was just, it was, it's just, it's too hard to do that for, you know, routine after, you know, for 30 routines in a row, you, you'd get a migraine doing it the way I was doing it. Right. Um, so the app kind of helps out with that. And it's not perfect, but it's better than what we had before. And it's more transparent. You can actually look at the timing chart and see where people all agreed that there was no swing and where there was swing and that sort of thing. So as a tool in the future, that, that could be very useful to competitors so that they could see that. Um, and, you know, I mean, over the year, I've had several competitors call me up and say, will you look at my routine and look at it for swing content? I'm like, sure. And, uh, you know, as a professional concert, uh, courtesy, I would just look at the routine and with them on, you know, I'm at home and they're at home and I'd say, okay, this doesn't look like swing to me. This looks like swing. Stop it here at, you know, 24 seconds in. This isn't swing and this is why it's not swing. Um, and, you know, always preface it with this is my opinion because, um, if we're, we're not using criteria like the U.S. Open had, then it's, an opinion. Once right. we had the criteria, I could say, well, this, this is a one footed spin. This does not fall in. And you may think this is a, a, a normal swing move, but it, it falls in the category of non swing. So this is a mm-hmm. trick. And so this, this is going to be in your percentage of non swing. And, you know, where most, um, most people tend to get themselves in trouble is with the intro and the exit. They take so long developing the storyline that they're doing. Um, that it eats up a lot of the time of non-swing so that when they go to put a trick or something and now they don't have any time left. So uh, that's, that's something that I think people are learning is that they have to get into the dancing a little quicker and then on the ending they have to watch to make sure that they don't draw out the ending too many extra seconds that will eat into their non-swing content percentage. Right. What do you think of the fact that of all the finals dances, only three of those routines had no warnings or violations. Do you think that says something about just the state of the dance or the nature of choreography? Well, um, I don't know about that. I mean, as far as if if that is an accurate statistic, that only three, are you saying in all of classic and showcase, only three didn't get? Um, uh, sorry, only, only three, three of the passed? classic, three of the classic finals didn't get a warning or a violation. Oh, okay. Well, uh, that could be due to a lot, lots of things. Maybe they didn't send the video in because um, not everybody sent a video in ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe those that did send it in um, did changes to their choreography and didn't make the calculation and didn't send it back in for a second look. Um, that, that could happen. And also a lot of people I think are totally fine with being in the swing warning category, um, that it's mm-hmm. right on the edge, uh, that they're not going to get dropped in a placement. And so they're okay with that. Um, of course, as, as a swing content judge, it makes me nervous 
you know, I, I don't like it. I don't like any, I, none of us want to give out any warnings or violations at all. We, not like we're happy when we <laughs> find, right. find a low swing content percentage. It's like, we don't want that. But I understand that people want to dance right on the edge because they want to make it an exciting routine. They want to tell a certain story. They, they want to show all the, um, variety of abilities that they have on the floor. So, I get that they're pushing the envelope because it's a high stake contest. And so this is where you get to push the envelope. But I think if they're smart, they're going to stay, you know, well within the uh, swing content warning area that's closer to not having any warning at all, rather than a violation, because if they make any changes and then they drop into the violation, they're going to get dropped a placement. Right. So um, I think having a warning is not, considered a bad thing. I think from what I've heard with some competitors, they actually want to get a swing content warning because that means that they, they did their balance correctly. Mm. So yeah, that's interesting. That's in their opinion, that's not, that wouldn't be my opinion, but you know, I can, <laughs> I can see the argument for it. Sure. What did you think of the dancing overall this year and what it says about, you know, where our dance is? Well, this year was a great year for me. I mean, as you know, 2019 was the first year the open lifted gender restrictions on showcasing classic registrations. Um, right. So we were able to get two couples who were able to compete who hadn't had the opportunity before. We had, um, let's see, Callum Powell and Glenn Ball, and then mm -hmm. my daughter, Samantha Buckwalter, and her partner, Lauren Asef. And, you know, that was just wonderful to see that. And I think their placements um, validated the position that non-traditional couples can and should be taken seriously in the NASDAQ divisions. And, you know, a lot of the credit for that has to go to the Rising Star Tour for being at the front of it. But the fact that right. Callum and Glenn placed third and Samantha and Lauren were, you know, pretty much right in the middle of the 15 couples with, I think it was eighth place. I mean, they were over the moon happy about that. Um, I think that's just that's just wonderful. I mean, the whole, the whole degendering thing is, you know, still in transition and will be for a while. Um, I think, I, I don't know, but I think Sam is probably the only person who, um, I know of anyway that started in juniors in one role and worked her way up from novice, intermediate, advanced, all sorts of champions and then went back down when there was that small window of opportunity for champions to go back into novice and underway from novice all the way up to all-stars and in leader points. So mm -hmm. I think that's just, you know, a tremendous accomplishment. And I was so proud of her and, and so grateful to Lorraine Baldovi because she, she had two front row seats and she actually gave me one seat so that <laughs> I could actually watch Samantha. Cause I don't know if people realize it, but if you're a judge at the open and you're not judging, you just have to find an open seat somewhere. So um, <laughs> I, I was very, very happy. I got to be front row and center and, uh, and watch their performance. It just made me so tremendously proud of, of, of her and where the movement is. It's just very, gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, I, I, I think, too, on another level, um, just being a swing content judge, I think I mentioned earlier, it, it was just so much less stressful than being a regular judge. Um, so that made the weekend really, really a great weekend for me. Was it less stress? Because I feel like the swing content judges were being more 
like, I feel like your scores uh, were subject to more criticism. Well, that might be true, but I mean, when you're a regular judge, you're supposed to be judging swing content as well um, as, as timing and technique and teamwork and presentation and choreography and musicality and all that. Uh, And it's, it's really hard to do everything and then you have to place everybody. And so I don't know about other judges, but I go back to my room and I agonize over, you know, my placements, like, was I biased? Did I, was I fair? Did I do it right? Did I walk my talk sort of thing? And um, that's, that's really makes for us, for me, a stressful weekend, but the swing content is so cut and dried. I mean, you you basically have a set of rules of things you're looking for, like one-footed spins or drops or aerials or whatever. And when you see them, you you punch the button for non-swing, and it mm-hmm. is what it is. And so I could go back to my room, and I could leave it in the ballroom because there was no second guessing. I mean, I know when I saw a one-footed spin, and I know when I saw, you know, swing. So it was – I didn't have to, like, think about it. And for me – I love that because it's a transparent process. It's objective. Um, and, you know, we were so careful to, you know, make it user-friendly so that people could submit their videos and then resubmit their videos. I mean, we were looking at videos, like I said, until just a few days before the open. So, you know, it's, I think it's a very fair process. Yeah. Well, and that, that actually brings me back to what you were talking about before with, um, with the, the same gender couples. Um, I think it's notable that while um, Glenn and Callum did ultimately place, um, in part because there were a couple of violations, and Sam and Lauren did really well, but they, they weren't in the top five, um, I think also contradicts some of those people who say that same-sex couples might get favoritism because of the uniqueness or of the the like shock value of seeing them um, because I've heard that argument too, right? That, Oh, well seeing, you know, two men dance together is going to be, there's going to be bias in favor of that. Um, right. But I think the right. fact that like, they didn't just magically win. Right. They, I think we can all agree that like those, <laughs> they, they were, it was a great routine, you know? Um, yeah. And, yeah. and it won on the merits of so the artist and the dancing. Yeah. And it, it yeah. wasn't just that there was two men um, and Sam and Lauren did well too. Right. But like, appropriately placed regardless of gender right and, and i think that's you know, a I good mean, proof of concept yes I, I absolutely agree i think that that totally validated what we've been saying all along it's like okay you've got a really uh, big tall strong leader dancing with a little petite follower and they have an edge and showcase so what you ding them because they're not the same size and no sure you factor things into degree of difficulty and all of that kind of stuff but it's just one of like a thousand things that you have to think about when you're judging and it's not going to make a decision uh it's not going to automatically get somebody first or last place i mean i think right. in some ways probably the same thing was said about you know um, you know, back in back in the very beginning, what happens if you have couples of, of different nationalities out on the floor? You know, teams is are they going to get dinged or are they going to get extra credit? Or what if they live on different parts of the world and they have to travel and it's a hardship for them to get together and practice? Are they going to get extra credit for that or are they going to get dinged for it? It's like no, you you judge 
the dancing that is on the floor, not the backstory, not anything else that isn't relative to dancing. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's, that's kind of cut and dried. It's how it should be, but I'm just I'm just glad the this the judging this year reflected that. Yeah, me too. And um, you know, it was I, I hope the trend continues. Um I hope we don't I mean, like any movement you take, you know, one step forward, two steps back and it keeps going like that. So I think it's gonna take a while before people get used to um the the concept that swing content requirements are actually going to be enforced and maybe in some events they will and some they won't for a while until there becomes some standardization and you know I don't know how many people are going to embrace the app and use that or they don't like the app they can just use a stopwatch and they can just count the seconds and do the math and you know do it that way that's another way to do it I mean because the app is just a fancy stopwatch so um you know, it, it, it remains to be seen what happens in the future. But I do hope that um, we don't just give up on swing content because then you're going to see, you know, an international cha-cha couple come in and do a great, incredible performance. And the judging judges panel will have to come first because there is no swing content requirement, right? And that's it'll just be a dance contest then. Um, so without the swing content requirement, we, we're losing the, the whole point of it being a swing competition. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was actually more swing content in the routine divisions than there has been in previous years. Um, and by that, I mean the actual content, not necessarily the music choices or anything like that, but just, I think the fact that the open drew a line and said we want to see swing content and we value swing content and we're going to actually enforce a rule that's always been there we're not going to make a new rule we're just going to really enforce the rule that's always been there um i think that a lot of people took that to heart and decided that okay if that's what they're going to do and it's even even playing field for everybody then i'm going to play by those rules and so we got to see more swing i think there were some competitors that didn't get the message and thought it was business as usual that had been in previous years where um, it was more of um, more subjective about um, the swing percentage for individual judges and they didn't realize that yes they were actually going to be held accountable mm -hmm. um, and I think now they've learned that and I think next year we will get a lot less violations and maybe even less warnings because people see that it's it's being enforced. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of when I was chief judge at um, Phoenix, they, they they had a rule that said that the contestant meeting was mandatory. And I said, well, um, okay, if you're going to do that, you know, you, you really need to do it because in the past people didn't, didn't adhere to that. And so right. we actually locked the doors. Um, to the contestant meeting and the first year we had like 10 people banging on the doors after you know halfway through the contestant meeting because they just wanted to come in for the roll call um, mm -hmm. to show that they'd been there and we didn't let them in and then the next year we had like two people and then the year after that nobody so it's like it takes a couple years for people to realize oh they're actually enforcing this rule then okay well we're going to do it right 
um, but you have to you have to enforce it. And I think the open did that. They they enforced the rules that they put down. So I think next year people will be more likely to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I was very happy with the dancing this year and talking to some of the competitors. I think yes, the new swing content rules made them nervous going into the whole thing. But um, I think even the competitors feel like the dancing was really good this year, um, maybe even better because of the rule. And I'm hoping that that trend continues. I'm also hopeful that the U.S. Open will continue to work on refining their process and yeah. their rules. And hopefully I, people do provide that feedback that you suggest they give. Yeah, I think that they're definitely open to that. And I also think that one of the unintended consequences of the new rules are um, that there will be a longer shelf life for the follows in classic. Um, in the past, um, there's been so much emphasis on tricks and, you know, on the, the floor work. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people don't realize how hard that is on the body. And, of right. course, it's the, the follows that are are bearing a large brunt of that um, and showcased. Um, not all. I mean, some are uh, some some teams are a little bit more equitable in how they share that. Um, but in a lot of instances, it's the follows that are are doing the 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 knee knee on the floor and dragging and you know bending over backwards and that kind of stuff, which over time is very hard on the body. And so yeah. by having to be more judicial in the pick of tricks and drops and things and slides and whatever that people are doing. Um, there's a few less of them and the emphasis more is on the dancing, which is why the large majority of people come to watch. They come to watch dancing, you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily all the tricks and stuff like that. So um, I think that that will be better for, for the health of the actual competitors and um, that's just something I realized kind of after the fact, after watching the Open this year, is I thought, well, hey, you know, that looked like that wasn't going to be as hard to practice. I mean, it's hard to practice, but not as hard on the body in some ways as some of the other um, routines I've seen. And, you know, uh, one of the comments that I heard before on your podcast is how the dance has become more athletic. Mm-hmm. And... Um, for me, it has not. It has stayed the same. Hmm. I am. I am not um, somebody that has ever uh, rolled around on the floor and done somersaults and things like that and bendovers and all sorts of stuff. And I never have. And throughout the whole evolution of the dance, as it is quote unquote changed or evolved, um, there are certain things that I just don't do. And what I've found is that there are ways to dance around that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. for example, when a leader um, arcs the, the right elbow up and expects me to duck under, I just become a proactive follower and I lift up their arm and I walk underneath it so I don't do duck-shaped turns. Uh, that's just not my jam. And every once in a while, I'll get somebody that looks at me kind of funny um, and then they'll offer it to me again. I just lift it up and walk on and they, they, you know, people aren't stupid. They get the message that, no, that's not going to work with Kelly. You know, Kelly doesn't <laughs> want to do that for one reason or another. And, you know, they try to take me down onto the floor and I don't go because I know how to not go down on the floor. And they're like, oh, okay, this isn't going to work with her, you know, and I don't want to have to be the person that goes into my whole medical history to explain why certain things are not comfortable for me or I don't want to do it. I think right. 
a dance is it's a conversation, a consensual conversation. So if one person doesn't want to talk about something, then you don't keep talking about it. Right. <laughs> you go somewhere else. You find something else to talk about. There's plenty of things to talk about. And I have found that um, I'm not limited at all. Uh, I, I don't feel limited at all by the fact that I prefer not to do some of the style of dancing that a lot of the 20 year olds are doing out on the floor. That doesn't, that doesn't bother me at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm mindful of the time and I, I know you have to run to go teach this evening. I feel like I could just keep talking to you for hours. So I'm, I'm going to have to have you come back on the show to talk more. Um, Cause even sure. this topic alone of like the athleticism of the dance of, you know, physical limitations, dealing with that in a social situation, um, things we've touched upon, but I would love to hear your views on that and and how the dance is continually evolving. So at some point, it'd be great to sit down with you again. But I really appreciate you taking the time today. I'm so glad we finally got to sit down together and for you to share all your wisdom and insights. It was awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for inviting me. It was a pleasure. A few thoughts on this episode. Well, many thoughts, but a few that I'll share. First, on the degendering issue. I'm glad the WSDC is considering changing the rules so you're not obligated to compete at the same level in the other role. I know there are people who will be upset when more experienced dancers try their hand at the other role in the lower divisions for many of the reasons that we said, feeling like people are sandbagging or taking their points, that it's not fair to compete against someone who has achieved higher competency in a different role. But also, as we discussed, just because you are proficient in one role does not mean that you are proficient in the other. Yes, a more experienced dancer may have a better quality of movement or better control and awareness of their own bodies or even better musicality, but when people switch roles, they change how they think they're supposed to move, and that change in mentality often changes how they actually move their own bodies. I'm sure lots of you have seen great women followers or male leaders who stand differently or carry their frames differently when they switch roles. In my experience, personally, I feel like a lot of women leaders tend to try and emulate a male aesthetic when leading, and men who follow often adopt a more effeminate aesthetic. Not that they should or need to. In fact, I prefer that they move according to their own body, but they do change how they move, not because their bodies changed, but because their mindset changed. They think of the other role differently. And anyone who has danced both roles knows that it is, in fact, a different experience. So even if you're a talented leader, it doesn't guarantee you'll succeed as a lower-level follower. And those that are proficient in the other role will quickly move up and out of the lower division. So while the competition may be tough for a while, it will be temporary. And if you're uncomfortable dancing with someone of the same gender, well, you've got some choices. Don't compete, or do compete and take the risk. And if you do draw someone of the same gender, I guess just suck it up and dance for the 90 seconds you have to. It'll be over soon. But I'm with Kelly here. This dance is not about sexual foreplay, or at least it doesn't have to be. Will it sometimes be romantic? Maybe. Fun? Yes. Silly? Perhaps. We dance to a wide variety of music that creates a wide variety of dynamics and emotions. But regardless, to me, this dance is about connecting with another person and working together to express what we hear and feel in the music. Male, female, old, young, gay, straight, black, white, or anything else, it doesn't matter. 
This is a partnership with another human being for a few minutes, and hopefully a fun, joyous, rewarding partnership at that. It is physical, but that doesn't mean it must or should be intimate or sexual, something we should really keep in mind even, and perhaps especially, when we are attracted to our dance partner. That's a topic we'll return to on this show at some point soon. If we can shift our mindset to think of this dance as a collaboration between two people, as opposed to a man and a woman who are heteronormal, it opens up more possibilities and more opportunities to connect and experience this dance with more people. I hosted a series on degendering competitions a few years ago on my blog, Naked Basics, featuring Kelly and others. I'll share a link to the first of that series in the footnotes. Anyway, the other thing I wanted to comment on was Kelly's experience as a swing content judge at the Open this year. I really appreciated how she did her best, as she always does, to be fair and transparent. She really wanted a practical tool that would make it very easy to track swing content, and then a clear definition of swing content so it could be easily identified. She put in the time to practice using the app, and made sure that regardless of the routine, she could properly assess its content. And she was so generous and supportive with the competitors, encouraging them to submit their videos even after the deadline. People may not have been happy with the results of the Open this year, but I hope they feel better after hearing how dedicated Kelly is to the competitors and to the fairness of the process. But what do you think? What did you think of Kelly's thoughts on the Open and her role as a swing content judge? Did you submit your video and get feedback? Did you give feedback to the Open on the definition of swing content? And how do you feel about degendering competitions? Would you be comfortable dancing with someone in the opposite role who is much better than you at the same role? What are your thoughts on the current WSDC rules? And do you agree that the different roles have different skill sets, that being proficient in one role does not guarantee proficiency in the other? Share your thoughts with me and your fellow listeners. You can post a comment on the website, you can respond to our posts on Facebook, or you can share your thoughts in our discussion group on Facebook. Yes, there is a discussion group. Go check it out. You can also email me at thenakedtruthwcs.com or through our Facebook page. To get the latest news, you can like our page on Facebook, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter, follow us on Instagram at TheNakedTruthWCS, and go ahead, be brave and bold. Follow us on Twitter at NakedTruthWCS. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review on Facebook. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Eric. And my name is Kelly. And And that's that's the the Naked Naked Truth. Yeah, I think yeah. I think anybody in the business needs to keep working at it, just like we all keep working at our dancing. You know, I'm still working on how to do a sugar push. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I'm not done yet. I I think that that's the funniest thing is that you know when I started this, um, whenever I started it, and I was doing all the other dances, and my teacher said, you know, well. I said, it's too many, too many dances. I'll never get them. And they said, pick one. I said, West Coast. And when I'm done, I'll go back to the others. And I'm not done. Not done. <laughs> I know. Later, I yeah, you're chasing a moving I target. Yeah, I haven't finished West Coast Wings. So it's like, I, I can't go back to International Waltz because I'm not done. <laughs>
Right. Uh, West yeah. Coast Swing is yeah. like the golden snitch of partner dances. Yeah, Impossible I like that. Catch. That's a good analogy. <laughs> yes, it, exactly. Well, Harry Potter caught it, so maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's true. Eventually. A, a couple people here and there can, can, can get it.